Today we press on in our series, which is titled, Why Church? And we've been looking at a number of different themes about church, about ecclesiology, and today we're looking at the theme of connecting. So the title is, Why Church? Connecting. And I'm going to begin reading in chapter 10, verse 19, and read all the way through verse 25. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you. We want to praise you because you opened up a new and living way. By being crushed for us, by having your body torn in two, you have now invited us and given us access and permission to come in. And in doing so, you have united us one with another into your church. And Lord, how we long to understand better what that means. And we pray that you would help us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. During the Winter Olympics just a couple of months ago, there was a cross-country skier. His name was Anton Gafaroff. He was a Russian And he was competing in the finals for his event, which was cross-country. And in a kind of tragic twist of unexpected developments, he crashed, breaking his ski. Now, this meant not only would would he not medal, but more important to any Olympian, he probably would not finish the race. And then, if you watch the video, then suddenly, out of nowhere, a coach appears, he strips off the bad ski, the broken ski, he fits him for a new ski, and Anton takes off, and he is able, as a result of that, to at least finish the race. Because of the help from this coach, Anton was not only able to cross the finish line, but he was able to finish the race. And I guess that's the role of a good coach, isn't it? He gives the players what they need to move forward. He gives the players what they need to finish the race. Now, the anonymous writer of Hebrews has assumed the role of a coach. He is writing during troubling times. There is a cloud of persecution that is growing, and the believers that he is writing to are under the threat of persecution. 
This, by the way, is not a new experience for them. They, their earlier troubles are referenced a little, little later on in chapter 10, where he says in verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach. He's talking about a former time when they were already persecuted, and specifically under the reign of Claudius in A.D. 49. But the future prospects are far worse than even that what they experienced in the past. In fact, this would be a storm that would indeed come upon these believers under the reign of Nero in a couple of, in a decade later. And so this epistle is trying to brace the church for suffering and arm them to engage God that they might be able to endure, that they might be able to persevere, that they might be able to finish the race. In fact, he says as much in verse 36 of this chapter. He says, for you have need of endurance. He's writing to a people that have need for endurance. And so he's coming to them, almost as a coach, in this tragic moment, attempting to give the players what they need to keep them moving forward, attempting to give the players what they need to help them finish the race. And so what the writer to the Hebrews does is he kind of he pounds away chapter after chapter at two great questions, almost like an attorney who's carefully constructed a case to support the plea that he has submitted, carefully coming at it time after time. And the first question that he is seeking to answer is, why is Christ worth the cost? And he opens the book and talks repeatedly over the number, a number of chapters on the fact that Christ is superior to all things. Christ is superior to the angels. He was superior to Moses, superior to the sacrificial system, that he is a superior savior. He is supreme. And then he moves on to a second question, and this is far more practical and far more relevant for our purposes this morning. And that is, how do believers endure? How do believers persevere to the end? And it is in response to that question in particular that the coach pens this section that we just read. And in this section we just read, he prescribes three different ideas, a three-part strategy, if you will, on building endurance so that one may stand to the end. And the first idea begins to surface in verse 22 when he says, let us draw near. In other words, he's talking about drawing near to God. He's talking about drawing close to God. And he goes back and he reminds us that since Jesus has provided the new and living way through his flesh, which was torn in two for us, we can now draw near to him. In other words, we have access. We have a passport. We, we have been authorized by God, by the blood of Jesus, to be able to approach him, to draw near to him as we are on the threshold or as they are on the threshold of of suffering. So let us draw near is the first idea. Secondly, comes out in verse 23 where he says, let us hold fast our confession in an unwavering manner. In fact, let us do that, he says, remembering that God is faithful. So that when our world trembles with opposition, we must hold forth and hold carefully the unshakable foundation for the firm foundation of Jesus Christ stands sure. And so the second idea he sets forth is that we hold fast our confession 
in an unwavering manner. But it's this last idea that I want to pay careful attention to, which kind of surfaces in verse 24 when he says, let us press into community. So there's this, there's this startling addition. You, you don't even expect it. You don't, you don't even think it's going to go in that direction where he's talking about we drawing close to Jesus, verse 22. And then all of a sudden it shifts, and he begins talking about us together, one another, the church. And he, so he not only calls us to a life of dependence upon Jesus, but he begins reminding the believers of their their commitment to interdependence upon one another. And it is to this point that that we're going to dedicate the most time. It's this point that's going to occupy our attention from here on. Now, I should probably say as we continue that this this series was birthed out of a a pastoral concern for Four Oaks. It is one we hold for you. It is one we hold, in fact, for ourselves as well. And that is that in the local church, we have been given this this prodigious treasure, one that is designed to help us grow, one that is designed to help us love and to help us to apply and obey and endure. But it's easy for us, all of us, to kind of become over-familiar with the gift that we've been given, with, with the treasure that we have been entrusted, and to not really value it in the way that God does, because it's easy to become over-familiar with it. You know, I was talking to a guy once who, uh, who was watching the Antique Roadshow. Anybody ever watched the Antique Roadshow? So he was talking about how he was watching it, and this woman had come in to have an old picture assessed because she had been given the old picture from a grandmother who always said that the picture was incredibly valuable. But she never thought it was valuable. It never looked valuable. It was old. It seemed worthless. And so she hung it on the wall in her house, and it just became a fixture that was there for years. But the antique roadshow was coming to town, and she thought, ah, why not? And so she took it in with hopes that it might be worth something. And they they assessed it, And they turned to her and said, ma'am, I'm sorry to report to you that the picture is virtually worthless. And she was kind of disappointed, and so she began, she took her picture and she began walking away. And the guy was calling after her saying, yes, I'm sorry to report that the picture is utterly worthless. And she said, yeah, yeah, I got the point, thank you very much. And he said, now the picture is worthless, and as she's just about to walk out the door, he says, but if you'd like to talk about that frame, I have something to say. And she kind of stops, real startled, and she turns around and comes back over. And he begins telling her how this frame is with its ornate wood and its unique craftsmanship and its, its age and, and all of these different features of it, how it's actually very, very valuable and that she has just become a very, very wealthy woman. And I took from that as I heard the story, I thought here, here she had been given something of great worth, a deep and a, and a profound treasure. But yeah, like, like so many of us, she didn't recognize the value. It just hung on her wall. She walked past it every day. She didn't value it. She, it didn't seem like a treasure to her. And that's not unusual because it's not hard to become overly familiar with things that we become more accustomed to. And it's not hard to become overly familiar with God's church to lose the sense of worth and value that he places upon it because it seems so, I don't know, 
is the word routine. Oh, it's, it's just, just church. Do we really need to go this week? Or, oh, it's, it's just this fellowship group. I can miss it. It's not that important. It's just another meeting. Or it's just a need. I mean, do I really need to serve? Do I really need to give it up this time? Do I really need to sacrifice? See, my point is this. If we don't perceive the treasure, it's hard to truly value it. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people that have to be armed to suffer. And he wants to make sure they understand the assets that have been given to them so that they might be able to truly use those assets when the suffering comes. There's a sense where God loves them too much. No, let's personalize this. God loves us too much to allow us to continue on in this arduous journey that we're called to, this life that we walk through, Vanity Fair, where, all the, where oftentimes it just seems like everything is on fire without something that He has given us, something that is of great value, something that has great significance, something that is a true treasure. And it is the opportunity to connect with one another. And this is the path that the writer of Hebrews points them on and us on as well. It's a path where we connect and our connections, our meetings, actually have a bigger purpose. Our connections boost our endurance. They strengthen our endurance. They reinforce our endurance. But it's designed that way. Meetings are not just something random. They have intention in Scripture. And at the very time where the Hebrews are most vulnerable, the writer of Hebrews is calling them back to something that's going to be critical for them to finish the race, and that is each other. And he does this in two different ways. There's kind of two ways that he proves that connections boost endurance. And he says, let us consider some things, he says. Let us consider, number one, meetings. Let us consider meetings. Now, last week, if you were here, Josh spoke of the most significant meeting that we have each week, and that is our Sunday service, what we're enjoying this morning, the opportunity to worship together, to hear the Word of God preached, to enjoy the sacraments, to remember Jesus. Most significant meeting we have each and every week. However, there is a second meeting that is significant also, and that is our fellowship groups, and that's part of what I want to talk about this morning. And actually, we can't improve upon this verse for talking about it. And let me explain to you why as we go back into verse 24. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good work. So we are called in this verse to be stirred up and to stir up one another in two things, love and good works. But it's not as if he just leaves us dangling on how we are to apply that verse. He not just leaves, us, leaves it open-ended on where to do or how to do it, but he goes in verse 25 and begins to call for meetings where that kind of thing can happen. Specific contexts where verse 24 and verse 25 as well, because he says, but encouraging one another all the more, specific contexts where verse 24 and verse 25 can be enjoyed, can be experienced, can be applied places where we can learn to be doers of the Word. And, and this is no coincidence. And it's no coincidence, in fact, when we telescope out and we see that even when the Spirit of God fell all the way back in the book of Acts and the church was formed, 
that one of the things they immediately began to do was to meet together in the temple, meet together from house to house, and to begin to share their lives one with another. But this wasn't just a space issue. And it was that in part, but it wasn't just a space issue. They, they were beginning to find ways to share their life with one another because that would ultimately emerge into commitments to live a shared life, commitments to community that, that Paul and Peter would write about through the one another's. What is there, 31, 32 different one another's in Scripture? Love one another, serve one another, greet one another, honor one another, welcome one another, all these one another's in the New Testament. So it wasn't just to satisfy this human need for relationship. There was something far more significant going on. It was because the writer of Hebrews knows, and God knows for us, that up ahead there may be pain. There may be suffering. There may be persecution. I mean, you think about the New Testament. Much of the New Testament is written against the backdrop of pain, suffering, persecution, opposition. And so we are called to connect with each other because connecting was God's you know, vitamin supply to boost our ability to endure. And so every church has to decide how they are going to encourage and facilitate verse 24 and verse 25, how they are going to create context for connection. And for Four Oaks, this local church, our context is fellowship groups. Fellowship groups is just another word for our small groups, but fellowship groups, very important, fellowship groups. It doesn't mean we're just offering fellowship groups. It doesn't mean that we're trying fellowship groups. It doesn't mean we're experimenting with fellowship groups. This local church is a church of small groups. If our church was like the cathedral being built over on Thomasville Road, that, you know, St. Peter's Cathedral, the small groups would be the mortar that glues us, that holds us, that connects us together and holds us there. It's, think, of, think of the small groups as, as Facebook with actual relationships, not just the illusion of relationships, not just the illusion of friendships, but actual friendships where we really connect one with another. See, community is just a word until we actually have context to enjoy and apply. It's just a word. It's just a concept. It's just an idea. The one another's in Scripture are just passages until we have a place where we are living, breathing, working together to make them happen. So, God has designed the body in such a way so that growth, strength, health, and endurance comes through engaging each other, comes through meetings. That's why meetings are specifically identified here in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, towards the end of the book of Hebrews. Now, I realize we begin to hear this, and there are certain almost knee-jerk reactions that can come to our mind that we have to identify and explain and interact with. So let me, let me address to your mind some common connection myths. When I say myths, I'm just talking about faulty ideas that Christians can have about what it means to connect, to have meetings, to attend small groups, to be involved in community. Here's myth number one. Myth number one is, the more mature I become, the less I should need to be connected. In other words, maturity means connection and, and relationships with other people is less necessary. And that was 
probably a problem among the Hebrews. It seems like some were in the habit of de-emphasizing meetings. The writer is saying, don't neglect the assembling together, the meeting together, as is the habit of some. And so there's this, this sense among some people in the church, and there will probably always be this, that, you know, it's that staying connected, staying in relationships, pressing in with one another is kind of like using, I don't know, the same razor all the time. The more you use it, the duller it becomes. You know, that our, our maturity in Christ should mean our independence from one another, kind of like kids leaving, growing older, going to school, cutting certain ties. But it's not like that in Scripture. See, in Scripture there is a vision of growth and maturity where our growth and maturity means that we need less of some things but more of other things and more in particular of community. In fact, the vision here is that it seems to be a need that grows all the more as we see the day drawing near. And so as Christians, we never grow out of our need for meetings. We never grow out of our need for connecting. We need more of each other the darker the days become. We need more of the light of fellowship the darker the days become. In fact, I, I think the writer here of Hebrews knows something that we often miss, which is that the possibility of suffering and the presence of suffering, sometimes just it, it curves us inward, doesn't it? I mean, does it affect you the same way it does me? It curves us inward where we become more self-obsessed and we begin to think less of others and more of ourselves. And so it's almost as if he's anticipating that and he's saying, listen, before you even go back into suffering, let me encourage you, be thinking about other people, be thinking about others. Don't stir up or stir up one another to love and good works. Encourage one another. Come out of yourself. Don't curve inward. Because the dark nights when we are most tempted to shut everyone out is the very time when we most need each other. So it's a myth. The more mature I become, the less connection I need. It's a myth. Secondly, myth number two. I've attended Sunday meetings for months and I don't feel connected. I've attended Sunday meetings for months and I, I don't feel connected. And I think this goes to the purpose of each and every meeting that we have. For instance, if you were here last week, you heard Josh, and in hearing Josh's message on the Sunday meeting, at, at no point did you hear Josh say that the purpose of the Sunday meeting was for community or for fellowship or for care. Because those are unreachable goals for a meeting that is designed for worship and for preaching and the sacraments. It's impossible to satisfy those goals in a large meeting that is convened for another person. So to get connected, we have to make the big small. We have to make the big small. We have to position people for relationships, which is why we have fellowship groups. Listen, I'm, I'm quite sure that there have been people over the years that have come here have never attended fellowship group and have left feeling like they've never been able to connect in the church. I was there for several months. No one ever connected with me. I didn't feel like I really connected in. I have a desire to be relationally connected, but I never experienced that. I went to the church for a number of months. And when I hear that, my heart goes out to people. 
Because, because they're looking for the right thing, but they're looking for it in the wrong place. You know, it's like if I go up to the Chinese store up there, up there and I walk in and I say, hey, I'd like uh, three pepperoni pizzas and I'd like two strombolis. Could I have those immediately, please? There's nothing wrong with that request. I mean, the, the world would be a darker place without pepperoni pizza. Right request, right desire, wrong place to fill it. So, yeah, I mean, if people come in on Sunday morning, they should feel greeted. They should feel welcome. They should feel like we want them here on Sunday morning. But this is not the primary place where we experience relationship and fellowship. Now, having, having said that, um, have I been around long enough to be able to offer you an observation? Um, you think about that question while I offer you an observation. <laughs> I was talking... I was talking recently to a guest who, who came and I said, oh, you know, tell me what your experience was. And they talked about how they, they came in through the parking lot, came into the lobby. Um, nobody greeted them along the way, came into the service. Nobody greeted them. And, and at some point later on, somebody had greeted them. But that made enough of an impression upon them to mention it to me. And then I realized when I heard that, that I had heard that at other points as well. And... When I think about the areas that were strong, I don't think about greeting people as, as one of them. I think that's an area where we have room to grow. And yet I realize as well that Scripture calls us specifically to greet one another, welcome one another, show hospitality to one another. And, and w one of the ways that grace works in the heart of a believer is that as grace begins to operate, it has the effect of enlarging the heart. Because we're all fundamentally sinful and selfish. We're born that way. We're born turned inward. But what grace does is, is it operates as we grow and as we change. We find that, that we're turning outward more and more as grace enlarges our heart. And I want to encourage you to think about an application of grace in enlarging your heart that as you're around in these meetings, as you're around in your small group meeting, as you're in your neighborhood, that you're thinking beyond yourself to, to whether there's a new face there that might, might be helped by hearing from you or hearing you express how important it is or how much it means to you that they're, they're here. So when was the last time you walked up to somebody that you didn't know and came out of yourself in response to the grace of God and just applied this passage or greeted them or welcomed them. Think about that because that may be an area where God is calling you forward as well. Here's the last myth. The last myth is this church is too large to build relationships. This church is just too large to build relationships. Well, let's, let's be realistic about this because our capacity for relationships does not grow or shrink depending upon the size of church that we're involved in. And I'm not denying that it can be harder or easier in a large church to get lost. It can. But what I am saying is that regardless of size, it's ultimately going to come down to our own initiative. And it's okay if you're here and you prefer smaller churches. Um, 
I, I would just ask, don't spiritualize your preference and make it like that's the only thing that God blesses and that God wants. Because in the New Testament, we have both large churches and smaller churches. There were more smaller churches that, when, that they were, than there were larger churches, but there were both. And God blesses both. But the point that I'm trying to make is that our initiative will ultimately determine our success here, which is why the writer of Hebrews places the responsibility on each of us. Let us, he says three different times. Let us do this. Let us do that. Let us stir up one another. The, the responsibility is placed upon us. I was talking to a pastor once who, who told me about a woman who came to him who had been attending his church for several different months, and she was a woman. She presented herself by saying, you know, I love people and I love relationships, but I've been in your church for three months, and I don't have a single relationship yet. I don't have anybody reaching out to me. I've had nobody that I've established a meaningful connection with. And he said to him, ma'am, I, I think what you desire is a good thing. And he said, but let me ask you a couple questions. He says, you've been here three months. You love relationships. You desire them. He said, are you saying to me that you have actually went up and greeted people in this church and they've turned around and walked away? And she said, well, no, I'm not saying that. He said, well, are you saying that you have, you have intentionally invited somebody out to lunch after the service and they've declined? And she said, well, no, I'm not saying that at all. And he said, well, are you saying that you've invited them over to your house for, for a meal and they said they would not come? And she said, of course not. That's not what I'm saying. He said, well, can I just kindly suggest to you that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In other words, when it comes to the church of God, if you want to see something in the church of God, the way to see it come is, is, is not to simply stand there with your expectations and expect people to come your way. That in the church of God, we have two things that are available to us. We pray and we do. We pray, and the very thing that we want to see done in the church of God, we do, and then God blesses and reproduces on the basis of our initiative, not the initiative of other people. There's a reason why the writer of Hebrews locates the initiative in each of us and not in the person sitting next to you because that's the way forward, because connecting boosts endurance. Let me move on to my second and last point. Let us consider Meetings was the first one. Let us consider encouragement as the second one. He says, first, let us consider how to stir up to love and good works. And then he goes, gets a little more specific, encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So think about this. Think, think about what's going on here. The writer of Hebrews is trying to prepare a group that is on the threshold of suffering and he urges them towards encouragement. I mean, it's, almost, it's, it's totally counterintuitive because of what we were saying earlier about it just, you know, the tendency to turn in. In fact, he's not just saying encourage. He's saying raise the frequency and raise the volume of your encouragement as each day passes and as the day of the Lord draws near. Now, what's going on here? I don't understand it. Is this guy delusional? Does he live in denial? Is he kind of a rib or two short of a full rack in his mind. And, and it can appear that way if one, if one defines encouragement the way our culture tends to define encouragement as a kind of syrupy, flattery that, that praises 
superficial things, you know. Hey, not nice socks, you know, really nice, really, really nice socks. Or, or, or the, the way that we can, we can seek to reinforce unreality at times. You know, to, to say, you know, oh, brother, don't worry. God will, God will never let you suffer. And I just want to encourage you, God would never allow that to happen. You, this is your best life now. Is that what folks who are careening towards persecution really need to hear? Will, will that stir endurance? See, if we fully and truly want to understand encouragement, I want to suggest we, we study not only the writer of Hebrews' words, but the way the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the believers, because that's one of the functions of this book. One of the things he is doing is he's encouraging them to endure. So let's, let's look at his approach because he's modeling the very thing that he's calling us to do. So let's ask, how does he seek to encourage for endurance? And I think when we look at that, we find that there's several different things that he does throughout the book. And in the, in the, in the two chapters that we're looking at in particular, first, he reminds them of their confession. And this is a great definition of encouragement, by the way. He reminds them of their confession. He inspires their effort. And he praises their obedience. He reminds them of their confession. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You know, verse 35, he says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. He reminds them of their confession. He inspires their effort. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In other words, he moves beyond words to works. So he inspires, their con- or he, he inspires their effort, reminds them of their confession, inspires their effort, and then he praises their obedience. Again, look at verse 32. Didn't read this earlier. Let's read it here now. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, this is what you did. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. In other words, this is what you did. This is how God worked in you. This is how the grace of God was present in order to help you stand, and he'll be there again. God will help you again. So he reminds them of their confession. He inspires their efforts, and he praises their obedience, and he calls everyone, and I want to underline everyone, he calls everyone to do it. He says, let us do it, all of us, and meetings is where it's supposed to take place. Meetings, again, not neglecting to meet together. And I guess what I want to say by that is, by, is to say that, you know, if our meetings accomplish nothing else, they should be a place where we experience encouragement from one another, a place where we encourage one another, and a place where we leave encouraged because of one another. So let me, let me ask you to consider this question. Why don't we encourage more? In fact, let, let me just personalize it. I, because I don't think I do it enough. I know I don't do it enough. Why? Why? You know, the, the idea behind encouragement is that we... Praise seems to follow the things that we value. In other words, we, we praise what we treasure. We, we honor 
what we delight in. An FSU fanatic doesn't praise Jameis Winston because he's told to or because she's told to or because it's expected or required of her or because he feels pressured to do so. No. He praises because he sees Winston's value to the team. He honors his work because his work is worthy of honor. Yeah, I watched a, a video this past week of the, of the Senate session from this past week where our, our own Skip Martin, who is an elder in Four Oaks, was honored on the Senate floor because he was retiring for his years and years of service. And in fact, they, they moved to make the honoring a part of the official legislative history. And I would suggest to you that they are perceptive politicians to value a man like Skip Martin because they praised what they valued. So here's how this is applied in the context of our fellowship groups. Our meetings should exist for encouragement, to put courage in each other. So fellowship groups are a place where we, we honor what we value, and we value the right things. So we value each other, and we give voice in, in very specifics, specific and very thoughtful ways. Because encouragement isn't really encouragement if it isn't specific. If you just find yourself saying three reallys before something very general and broad that you want to say, it doesn't really land on other people. You know, brother, I just think you are a really, really, really good person. Thank you, that's very meaningful and highly insignificant. You know, it, for encouragement to really land, think about, think about the writer of Hebrews. Recall the former days. Remember after you were saved, he says, you endured sufferings. He says, you went to prison and you visited people. You were partners with those who were treated. You, you accepted the plundering of your property. He says, do you remember that? I thank God for you in that. I thank God for God's work in you in that. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do, do people know you as someone who's like that? Is, or, or to go back to the definition of encouragement, somebody who reminds them of their confession, inspires their effort, praises their obedience, someone who encourages other people. Now, I know when we begin to think through a question like that, there's all kind of things that can tend to come in our mind. No, Dave, you don't understand. I'm, you know, I'm an introvert. Well, maybe you aren't an introvert. I don't know. Maybe you're just selfish. I don't know that either. You know, too inwardly focused. But here's what I want to say. For every individual, individual in the way they are created before God, God has a way to give them grace to apply God's Word within the framework of their constitution and within the framework of how they are created. So, there will be folks that go back to children's ministry today and lavish great praise upon those who have watched their children and go on for for minutes about all that it meant to be able to sit in the meeting. And there will be those that go back and just say to the workers, thank you very much. Was deeply meaningful that I was able to go and listen to the Word of God. Thanks for watching my kids, and they're gone. But everybody should be doing that. Within whatever way you're created, God wants us to be able to turn toward the outside and give us grace to do that. All should be encouraging. 
we could say, well, you know, if I encourage in fellowship group, people will just think I'm sucking up. If I encourage at work, people will think I'm, I'm just a brown noser. And I get that because there are certain political realities in the world in which we live in. But I, I want to offer you a couple different thoughts to be thinking about this. First, um, <laughs> this one's real practical. Don't just praise your boss because if you do that, you are a brown noser. Don't just praise your leaders. Um, think about 1 Corinthians 12. Parts of the parts of the body that are weaker and are less honorable, we should give and bestow greater honor. So should we honor leaders? Should we honor bosses? Absolutely. In the same way we honor everyone. So we praise. We, we, we praise beyond those in authority. Secondly, think in terms of obedience when it comes to honor and praise. Think in terms, Scripture says, give honor to who? Those to whom honor is due. And so where you perceive honor, where you perceive something praiseworthy, think about that. That's what Philippians 4 says. If it's praiseworthy, think on these things. Think about that and give voice to that. Thirdly, remember, encouragement undermines cynicism. If you find yourself having a cynical mindset, one of the best ways to reverse that is to begin to, you begin to encourage, begin to think a different way and speak a different way because encouragement undermines cynicism. See, cynicism derives its power from a superiority rooted in a smug suspicion. That's where it gets its power. But encouragement derives its power from perceiving God's grace at work, whether that is common grace available to everyone. And by the way, there's a lot of encouragement that should be flowing from the Christian to unbelievers because what grace does is it gives us eyes to see God's grace at work in other people, even if it's a result of common grace that's available to everybody. So whether it's common grace, whether it's converting grace, whether it's sanctifying grace, we are seeing God's grace at work and blessing and thanking God for it. I love the way Paul talks about Onesiphorus. He says, he, Onesiphorus often refreshed me. I thought, oh, that's, that's a great way to be described by another person. I, I pray our fellowship groups have that effect on each one of us. They often refresh us. Here's a last thought, and I'm going to wrap up. Sometimes we can think, well, if I encourage to go straight to their head. If I encourage, it's going to foster a kind of laziness since they'll know the standard has been met and they'll throttle back. This is actually a big one for parents. But here's what I want to say about it because I think it really goes to an understanding of grace. Holding a standard without pointing people to the power that helps them change or to progress when they change is, is really near the heart of legalism. Holding a standard without pointing to progress is legalism. Because the law only ever expects, the law never encourages, it only expects. It says this is the standard, meet it or not. It only expects. But grace is the opposite. Grace sees the activity of God and rushes towards it to identify it and celebrate it so that God's name will be magnified. And I need that in my life. We all need that. 
in our lives. I've been involved in in small groups for over 30 years because I need it that much. I'm involved in two here. I need it that much. Because I need meetings where I can encourage other people. I need meetings where I can be encouraged because I realize my endurance is connected to my community. Community or connection boosts endurance. And that's part of the reason God has given us each other. It's part of the reason why he's given us this local church. It's the reason he's not only given us each other, but he's commanded us to connect. He's commanded us to meet together. So I ask you, what steps do you need to take to ensure that happens? What steps? And and today, as you leave out in the lobby, there's going to be fellowship group leaders that are out there. The groups are listed on the windows behind them, and they'll be standing there. And... It'll be an opportunity for you to go if you're not involved in a fellowship group and just talk to a fellowship group leader and find out what's involved in that and take a step today because God wants us to endure and he's provided a way to do it, but it involves our initiative. It involves us taking the step. So let's not, quote, neglect meeting together. Don't be among those that are described as is the habit of some. But let's do it all the more as we see the day drawing near.